Hello and welcome back to Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast, where we're doing yet another episode where they've let us out on the road for probably one of our shorter road trips. Yes. Down into the centre of Cardiff to the other university in Cardiff, Cardiff University, which is normally not got a huge amount to do with us, but now works with us on our teacher education programmes. We're going to explore a little bit more about that. And I'm very pleased to say that we have got with us I think uh, our first professor after Professor Donaldson, Professor David James, who's a professor of education here at Cardiff Uni. Hello, welcome. Hi, hi, morning. (laughs) Really good to have you. Um, And I guess our first important question to you is tell us about your career in education and how you ended up as a professor of education. Mm. It's kind of a a potted history, if you will. I will, yeah. Um, I'll try and do it briefly. Uh, I guess the starting point for me is that my academic interest wasn't immediate. It didn't, it didn't really spark off during schooling, although I had a good schooling, I would say. Uh, it was quite rounded. It was especially good, actually, insofar as I, in my secondary schooling, I met teachers who really cared and who were very supportive and very imaginative as well. And um, it was really um, a, a very happy secondary schooling. But I, 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 on the end of that, I went into a sixth form and didn't do very well at all. Um, I think I was a bit shocked by the, um, the change of, of, of tone, uh, the change in the view of teaching and learning that I encountered, actually. And so I didn't do all that well at, at A-level. I left um, school after that, did a whole series of jobs on farms, in factories, and all that time I was trying to be a professional musician as well, of sorts. And, you know, nearly nearly had some some success at that, but only nearly. And, and it was really a fellow musician that introduced me to the social sciences. He was working at a college of further education, uh, as well as being a musician, um, and he taught sociology. And he said, why don't you come along after we'd had a particularly interesting chat? I went along, I ended up doing his A-level class and applying to university. Uh, And very lucky, I got into Bristol University because at the time they were keen in a particular department to recruit mature students. I wasn't very mature, I was 22, but um, mature in classic terms, I suppose. And I did really well in my degree. So it was really on the back of that that I became, you know, eventually did a teacher education, worked in further education for a number of years, transitioned into HE because of my interest in staff development, did a part-time PhD, uh, which I finished in 96. And that that really started my trajectory in series of promotions eventually, that led to this job. And you're now working in an advisory role with us at Cardiff Met um, as part of our Cardiff Partnership clinical practice model. Mm -hmm. How did that relationship, uh, well, first of all, how did it come about? And most importantly, what do you see your role as being Mm, um, to us? Yeah, it came about because a couple of of colleagues at Cardiff Met who've now left, actually, um, were involved in designing a new teacher education programme that would respond to the um, reforms that the Welsh Government had been uh, pursuing, and and in particular, actually, the furlong review. Yes. And I I got talking to them about the new model of teacher education that that was envisaged, and commented a little bit on the early plans. And arising from that, um, it was felt that 
that if we could boost the capacity for both doing research and knowing about research and being sort of connected to research across the entire partnership, that that would really answer the call or begin to answer the call of the new reformed teacher education model. So that's how that came about. And then once the program was going through a process of accreditation, the colleagues at Cardiff Met asked me if I would be involved in that process. I went along to those meetings, um, was part of the team being interviewed in the end. And when it was successful, um, we drew up a memorandum of agreement about supporting awareness and capacity in research. It's, it's actually a very small resource at the moment anyway, but I think you know, it's something Cardiff University feels it's worth investing in. They have an interest in uh, all kinds of ways in which the university can be linked to schools. So, so this is a very good sort of answer to that. Thank you for that. And of course, bringing us right up to date, you very recently attended and presented at an event for our new role in our model, the Research Champion role, who is a school-based colleague um, responsible for mentoring, guiding, coaching our student teachers in their research endeavours whilst on clinical practice placement. That's right. And we wanted to chat to you today um, about some of the key things that you shared with our research champions and indeed some of us as university tutors in that event and it started curiously with an anecdote relating to your dentist Mm. tell us uh, or tell our listeners about this if you (laughs) you would and and share with them if if you would with the links to research sure absolutely um it's it's an interesting uh point that because um i was thinking well these these reforms and this new model of teacher education it really throws back in our lapse a problem which you know we haven't any of us involved in teacher education haven't sort of been we, we we're not the architects of the problem and that problem is that collectively the teaching profession if i can call it that um has had lots of mixed messages over the years about what kind of profession they are mm-hmm. and they've had contradictory signals actually so given given that's the situation that we're all in then being involved in a a programme of initial teacher education that attempts to respond to a new agenda in professionalism, the standards have been reconceived, not just rewritten, but reconceived, and which brings to bear the notion of research as a key element in professionalism. It gives us a real set of problems. We've got to, in a sense, find a realistic way of making that work. Mm -hmm. And no one's told us how to do that, any of us. So... I mean, that's both an intriguing set of issues and problems and a real challenge, I think, at the same time. So given, given that's the situation we're in, I was thinking, well, let's imagine what um, other professionals who've had l- fewer mixed messages about, about their professionalism, uh, let's see how they deal with research. So I thought, as I'm going to the dentist a fair bit at the moment, <laughs> I thought I would, I would start with my dentist. And he's wonderful. I mean, he's, he's wonderful anyway, um, partly because dentistry itself has changed. Mm-hmm. He knows a lot of stuff. He reads a lot. He knows about changing techniques. And <clears throat> furthermore, he thinks he needs to explain those to his clients. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the dentists I had earlier in my life were not like that. And it was partly because they were different people and it was partly because dentistry itself was conceived differently so I thought that's interesting you know what's it like when I go there well he he knows a lot about 
research in dentistry, but he's not a dentistry researcher. And he doesn't feel he has to be either. And that's a very important point Mm -hmm. for teachers, I think. And when he was in his training, he did come across a lot of research and he was partly trained by people who do research. Mm -hmm. And that's also important because he's had a close, a real close brush with research. And that's great. You know, it's fundamental to his to his training and indeed to his ongoing professional development. And that's important. He sees ongoing professional development as as necessary, not just as a luxury, Mm -hmm. but as a sort of way of being. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's also useful for teachers a couple of other things too he has a i call it a sharp critical awareness he has you know he doesn't take anything at face value he's quite critical of some of the medical companies for example or or the people that prepare products and try to sell them very hard that he where where he's not so sure of their efficacy or, Mm -hmm. or their safety you know he's really critical he has a real stance on those things and i thought that's that's interesting because that's a bit of a perhaps a little bit of a facet of thinking like a researcher, which is built into his work. And two final things, actually. I mean, he sees his job as doing good dentist work, dentistry, but he sees his job as as working with his patients, with his clients, to achieve better dental health. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't do that by just doing stuff to people. Mm-hmm. You have to enlist their interest and their support Mm -hmm. it has to be a you know it takes two to to dance that tango basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um and so so i'm really impressed he's changed the way i deal with oral hygiene you know completely Uh, and i'm very grateful to him for that finally it's always fun you know believe it or not going to the dentist for me is fun even if i'm having injections and something that sort of that, that sounds scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always laugh, sometimes a bit lopsidedly. <laughs> I always laugh at the dentist, and, and I, th- I think that matters too. Okay. We're hearing a lot at the moment about the need to close a perceived gap between the world of education research and the world of the classroom. And certainly the idea of the dentist being somebody who sees it as his job to engage in research but, but not be a researcher is a it's an attractive proposition uh, i find myself wondering if i'm if i'm putting a sort of devil's advocate point of view slightly mm. and, and we share a campus with with a school that involves health sciences so oh, yeah. we know a little bit about about yeah. how they work mm. i mean the world of health sciences is a world of kind of you know double blind trials and mm. replicating mm. results mm. and you mm. know does this work or doesn't this work mm-hmm. might we be in danger of um hoping that we can engage with a much messier world Mm. in education research and maybe therefore see some of the people that try to do that getting discouraged that that things are not maybe as cut and dried as they are in the world of health sciences. Uh, Absolutely that is a danger Um, so if you like that's where the analogy stops you know it's every field has a different kind of mix of knowledges and knowledge that's available and um, there is some education research that you that is fairly close to that medical or hard medical model if i can call it that where you can do you know you can do um you can use very large data sets you can uh, demonstrate the effects that say grammar schools in the uk have on different populations 
Uh, by the way, it's not very good news for grammar schools when you do that. Or, you know, you can look to some extent at more fine-grained moments or types of learning and say some fairly robust things about those on the back of research. So some of the knowledge is, is parallel. A lot of it isn't. A lot of it isn't. I, I think, I mean, I have two thoughts about that, really. One is that, you know, we mustn't mistake the contact with research for contact with some sort of generic, rather rather simplistic model of what research is. We mustn't, certainly mustn't do that. And, and secondly, by the way, the research in medicine isn't quite as clear-cut as it looks to some lay people. And I think this is a, you know, I'm really glad you've asked this question because at the moment um, the British Academy and the Royal Society um, commissioned a year ago, and, and I say at the moment because they're still talking about it, but they commissioned a report on education research and, it's, and, and they published a report called Harnessing Education Research. And I think, I think one of the problems with that is it too readily adopts a medical model of how research and practice should relate. So I, I, I think it's a really important point. And, and uh, if you like, our enemy is running away with the idea that the research and the knowledge actually is going to be the same or, the, or similar, of a similar nature, and therefore finding education research to be uh, in some sort of deficit. I, it's interesting that we, we talk about kind of teachers as growing in their research-informed practice, mm. but also being researchers themselves. Mm-hmm. For teacher trainees at the start of their journey, mm. I guess it's not really a binary question, but I'm going to put mm. it this way. Anyway. Which do you think is more important, for them to learn how to be consumers of research and mm. how that might inform their practice, mm. or to develop the tools to mm. conduct their own research? Mm. Good good question. And I think, I think the two... Are, you can differentiate, as, as your question has. I would say that, that to learn to be consumers, if you like, or engagers with research yes. insights, as with most things, there's no better way than doing. So, you know, having, a, having some contact, even if it's um, fairly limited in its scope, but having some contact with how it's done is vital. It's absolutely vital. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think in the programme that we, uh, we're all on this journey of discovery with, yes. um, quite a lot of the tasks involve inquiry mm-hmm. and are research-flavoured, if I can put it that way. Yeah, it's a nice um, way of putting it. Yeah, because I, I do think that, you know, as with most things, you have to do them to really get them. Um, and, you know, the idea... Some people still seem to be wedded to the idea that you that you can learn stuff in some complete sense and then go and apply it. It's a really crude idea, actually. Yes. I mean, it's a it's a misreading even of Descartes. You know, yes, this dualist idea. None of us do anything like that. Mm-mm. You know, one of my favourite examples there would be, you know, would be driving a car. So you can kind of learn everything about driving a car in the abstract or codified as, as you know, sets of if this, do that. Um, mm. But none of that's going to be much use unless you really have quite a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. And by the way, once you've been driving for a while, you never, ever call on anything codified in that way. 
Um, just occasionally, if something's going spectacularly wrong, you might suddenly have to start predicting and weighing up probabilities and taking very deliberate, unusual actions, right? We yes. hope that doesn't happen very much. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, to drive safely, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think most learning is, is a bit is like that. You learn to become something, yes. uh, not just to know stuff. Yes. Uh, uh, to put it sort of really basically, it's quite a messy process. Mm. Um, and often we encounter problems when we're working with our student teachers who learn about the kind of scientific process mm. of research. Mm. And then as soon as, as you say, they come to be embedding it or trialling it in practice, mm. they come to realise very quickly about, mm. you know, how, you mm. know, when you've got a classroom full of 30 pupils in front of you (laughs) your structured observation that Mm. you plan to do um, Mm. actually is really quite difficult Mm. Um, Mm. and then analyzing Mm. those findings can be a very messy difficult process so I I guess how do we navigate those sort of difficulties and how do we maybe safeguard and ensure that research-informed practice doesn't become a buzzword or indeed a stick to beat teachers with if they are not research informed or demonstrating that, you know, readily in a classroom. Yeah, really good point and question, I think. My view of that is that it has to be a bit like the difference between, say, doing a piece of research for a client against a brief, right, that's funded yes. usually, or hopefully, um, and somebody, perhaps me again, doing, say, a small scale piece of research, perhaps for a degree, for a master's or for an undergraduate degree or for a doctorate even mm-hmm. now the key difference there is that with the the one that you would do in an undergraduate degree a master's or a doctorate you are uh, as it were rewarded hopefully for seeing the strengths and limitations uh, seeing the weaknesses seeing the constraints and the affordances yes. of the approach and the design and the work and, and, you know, the people with the best awareness of those strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. should get the highest marks, right? And the cri- hopefully the criteria encourage assessors to look for that. Yes. Now, it's a very different story if I do something for the Welsh Government, you know, and I bid, and they say, these are the three research questions, and we're giving you the bid because we really like your methods. I'm not in then in a position to say, oh, well, actually, I think this, is, this has such serious weaknesses, this method, but I'm going to reflect on it and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to write about what's, what, what's, uh, what undermines it. They wouldn't want that. In fact, they would, they would see it as a um, weak research report, probably. Mm-hmm. So I think that using inquiry and research as part of the sort of modus operandi of a teacher education programme, yeah. in doing so, it's important to remember that it's okay to make all the mistakes Mm -hmm. and that any piece of research has weaknesses as well as strengths Mm -hmm. and that finding an intelligent path through those is the goal. That's interesting. And coming back to your analogy of of the dentist, I wonder if having research as a, a really important facet of teacher training and the teaching profession grow some dispositions that maybe don't get cultivated if we don't include it you talked about critical thinking you talked about your dentist having an opinion but you know based on sort of of careful evaluation of different sources 
is is that maybe the dimension that research yeah absolutely it's a vital ingredient if you're looking to build new forms of criticality professional awareness Mm -hmm. and it it goes with that shift from a list of standards Mm -hmm. of what constitutes a profession Mm -hmm. uh, which we've had and which you know by the way turned into a checklist for teacher education programs in some cases Mm -hmm. and and ruled out everything else Mm -hmm. Uh, we've gone from that to a series of headings a short series of headings under which teachers should demonstrate uh, capacity awareness growth um, capacity to further develop as well mm-hmm. and you know if that's the question mm-hmm. different kind of standard research is part of the answer mm-hmm. yeah. I read a really interesting and quite provocative article the other day about the perceived gap uh, between research and practice mm. Which made the interesting kind of implication that uh, one of the problems that practitioners have with high-level research is that it is very general. It's mm. not very context-specific mm-hmm. mm-hmm. because it needs it needs to be generalised uh, in order to be considered mm. good high-level research. Mm. And it made a series of suggestions, I suppose, that the world of maybe high-level Russell Group uh, research is set up to reward Mm. people who move in that direction. That's Mm. actually, if you Mm. uh, consciously try and present your research in a way that is more accessible, Mm. you maybe penalise yourself in terms of the kind of academic capital of the the Russell Group world. Mm. I mean, I I Mm. just found it an interesting article Mm. and wondered what Mm. you thought about that. Yeah, I think think that's a a fairly widely held view. It was recently articulated by um, David Willits, um, Lord Willits in Times Higher a couple of weeks ago, and his argument was that it was it was um, it was discouraging uh, some areas of research from you know adequate development uh, in in practical directions. Now I have a little bit of sympathy with that, but I also uh, would take issue with it. And you know my my favourite examples uh, here would be, and there are lots of them, uh, where really good researchers. They do, if I might call it, the sort of good science. You know, they do that in a way that that survives a peer review process and is recognised, and that adds to the um, probably to the sort of reliability or perceptions anyway of reliability and validity of their work. At the same time, they engage with a relevant community. It might be policymakers. It might be practitioners. It might be pressure groups, it might be other other groups. And there are lots of examples of this amongst uh, people I just, I've come across recently. Um, I would list Emma Reynolds here, who does very, I'd call it quite um, specialised research, drawing on feminist uh, epistemology and methodology, on um, sex and relationships education, but who works incredibly practically with teachers, children and policymakers and has changed the curriculum and has changed what happens in schools for the better. Now, you know, she doesn't see those as incompatible. She sees them as mutually reinforcing. So it's that old thing, you know, you can't have impact without... If you're measuring research impact, you can't do away with the research because then it's not research impact anymore, it's just impact, you know. And the research excellence framework doesn't 
measure just impact. It's not interested in just impact. Uh, it's it's a measurement of research quality. So there are other examples. I mean, there's a uh, Rachel Aldred at Westminster who does research on um, cycling and transport in London, and has made great strides, you know, with um, local authorities and others to make cycling safer. Now, again, you know what? Why she's authentic, why she's listened to, why she's got insight is because her research is so good. You know, it's not an either or this. Um, so uh, there are many other examples. Oh, 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 quite a lot of the time, actually, very good research doesn't get picked up or it doesn't get noticed or it gets ignored systematically because there are other interests or what just doesn't get through. In fact, sometimes it doesn't get through because some researchers aren't very good at connecting with relevant audiences, if I can put it that way. They're just not very good at it. Maybe, they, maybe they're not all, you know, they're not all going to be good at it. And we need other mediators and other brokers and other mechanisms to achieve the same thing. It's interesting, actually, because I think IT tutors inhabit an interesting space yeah. within, I, I, it's not a useful term, but within the pecking order, I guess, right. of researchers. Mm. And I wonder what, what your views might be about mm. how we raise the profile and sort of raise the aspirations and the confidence of IT mm. tutors, speaking mm. as one myself mm. and an early career researcher, mm. because they do, they naturally inhabit that unique space you just talked about, about mm. having one foot in the classroom mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. one foot in the mm. research mm. space in, in the HEI. Mm. So what are your thoughts on how we build that workforce capacity? Yeah, I think I mean it's a tough it's a tough call. I've mm. I've been in that situation. Uh, I'm kind of in it now, really, and I've met lots of people, worked with lots of people that straddle those fields. I think one of the problems with that is that very often the research that one is able to do as a teacher educator isn't properly resourced, mm -hmm. isn't funded. Mm -hmm. That hasn't always been the case all the time, but it's often the case. On the other hand, you know. Some of the best research isn't funded at all. I think I would I would say collaboration is a key here. Thinking back to a few years ago, there was a um, a, a fund for researching education. We need something else like that again. Mm -hmm. It was called the Teaching and Learning Research Program. It was quite a big program. Mm -hmm. um, the projects in that often involve teacher educators. Probably most of them did actually in one way or another. They often involve practitioners as well. Just teachers as part of research teams or in collaboration with research teams as well and some of the outcomes of those projects continue to reverberate have impact have changed things sometimes for the better and I think you know there is there are ways uh, to overcome the problems mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's it's a massive a, a disparity between kinds of knowledge. I don't think it's that. I think it's about resources mainly. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. And finally, I suppose we should see if you've got anything to say for our student teachers themselves who are Absolutely. grappling with obviously the kind of nuts and bolts craft of yeah, yeah, teaching yeah. while being told they need to be research informed and engaging with research. Uh, do you have any encouraging words for them just to finish off this main discussion? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing I would say is always uh, remember that the pre-constructed is everywhere. So if, if you're in a school 
and they say, oh, today we're doing maths at quarter past nine. Ask the question, what does that mean? Whose maths? What kind of maths and why? Uh, where does it come from? Who's constructed it? Is it just down to me as a teacher to construct it how I will? Or do the models, the concepts, the levels, the progression, the expectations come from somewhere else? I mean, that would be, that would be the first thing. Remember, the pre-construct is everywhere and try to approach it critically and thoughtfully. And, you know, that's quite hard work, actually, but it's something you can train yourself to do. And I suppose related to that, the other thing I would say is never miss an opportunity to make connections with your learners' lives outside school. Now, this is, um, this is particularly a problem in secondary, I think, secondary schools. And in some secondary schools, it's a spectacular problem. But there are ways around it. And it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, finding out that uh, whoever in your class organises parties at the weekend or goes fishing or enjoys, you know, going to the, to the fun fair or fixes motorbikes and then, and then trying to bring that. It might mean that, but it doesn't have to mean that. You can do things based around the locality, whatever your subject, whatever you're actually, you know, labelled as, whether you're a geographer, a mathematician, an English literature specialist or something else. There are always aspects of the locality you can bring in. And that helps enormously for people to feel like it's their business, not somebody else's business, to engage with the material. Professor David James, thank you very much for that deep discussion. Lots of food for thought there. We'd like to say thank you as well, because you've actually come prepared. You've done your homework (laughs) for our extra slots. (laughs) Yeah, I always do my homework. You do. (laughs) So uh, we're going to launch straight into those, starting maybe with something interesting that you've been reading of late or that you've been looking at. Sure, sure. uh, can I have two? Yeah, Is that all by right? all means. You You're yes. a professor, you can have what you like. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'll remember that on Christmas Day. Um, <laughs> um, my family might take a different view. Um, so uh, two things I think I would particularly recommend. One is an old, old book that I've been rereading. Okay. And the other one's a fairly recent book. Um, by somebody that I've worked with. So, the uh, first of all, the old, old book. And I'll preface this by saying that all of us in teaching and in schools and any kind of organised education, particularly in the UK, we all, to some extent, live or work in the long shadow cast by notions of general intelligence or IQ. And, you know, the idea that intelligence is basically one-dimensional, there's a thing called general intelligence, it's basically fixed you know you're born with it Mm -hmm. there might be a little bit of movement but not much and the fact that the the argument rather that it can be measured you know all these assumptions about iq they're all kind of lurking away there in fact they were fundamental to the building of whole parts of the education system as we know it so i think you know teachers especially need to be able to think again about that And they can end up where they like, of course, but they need to think again about that. They need to engage and confront these murky ideas and then decide what they think, not just accept them without 
that process. So, so the book, the book, the book is um, is actually by a paleontologist, like ah. that guy in Friends, you know. Yeah, um, Ross. And uh, that's it, Ross. Yeah, well done. <laughs> I'm a uh, fan. <laughs> so, so his name is uh, it's quite an old book now. His name is Stephen J. Gould, G O U L D, and the J is J A Y. Stephen J. Gould, and the book is called uh, The Mismeasure of Man. And I think it first came out in 1981, so it's it's it's. You can see mine is nearly falling apart. Here. Yeah. <laughs> it was first published in 1981. It's an absolutely terrific uh, account of the the reason that IQ emerged, and also the political context for its emergence. So fantastic book. Thank you. Uh, and then just just if I may, the um, the other one is a more recent book by somebody I've worked with in the past uh, called Diane Ray. And her book, Miseducation, um, which came out uh, in 2017, is a very, I think, an easy read. Mm. Um, it's highly autobiographical, but draws on the many research projects that she's been involved with over the years. So she's a, a now retired Cambridge professor, uh, but was a primary school teacher for many years. So, you know, a, a very good person to connect with I'd say yes. she communicates well too thank you we've got a staff book club at Cardiff Met I think we're going to tee that, that on one up put that yes, one on the definitely. list definitely terrific okay we also ask for something to try mm. do you have anything of I that do, nature yeah, I do I do I do um, it's quite a it's quite a simple but very effective idea that often gets forgotten uh, and that is if you've if you've got something you know you're teaching it could be anything, actually. It could be anything in any subject. It's it's often a, a really good idea to get learners to do some sort of small anticipatory quiz. The problem with that is that you must reduce the threat. So if you just stand in front of a class and say, does anyone know anything about X? You know, no one will say anything, or at least... Uh, if if somebody does, it's because they just like the sound of their own voice, maybe, or they want to make sure everybody else knows that they know something. And it's not always helpful. Mm-hmm. And most people will feel alienated by that and wouldn't want to expose potentially lack of knowledge in front of everyone else. So you need to set something up that reduces the risk. And uh, a little anticipatory quiz on two or three questions that are fundamental to what you're teaching is a really good thing as long as you reduce the risk Mm -hmm. and you can get learners working in pairs or threes that's one way of reducing the risk another way of reducing the risk is to use some sort of anonymity Mm -hmm. whether it's an electronic process like Mentimeter or bits of paper that are jumbled and then some of which would be shared uh, or, or indeed small groups where somebody reports back but isn't allowed to say whose idea it was, right? And this can be fun. What you're doing is encouraging guessing deliberately because it sets up a little bit more of a focus and a need for what then features in the main part of a, of a lesson or an activity. So that's, a, that's my idea. Uh, for anticipatory quizzes. Thank you, and that's useful as well because I think it's um, parameterless in that it, it will transfer within primary, within secondary, oh, across subject boundaries. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Any, you know, I particularly use that a lot with um, adults returning to study, for example. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much. And finally, our well-known well-being slot. How ah. does a professor of education look after his well-being? Mm. Well, that's that's a really good question. That's the one that made me think really hard and long. 
uh, although I did think about all, the, all of these, but um, I, I've got two things in response to that. One is um, it's taken me a long time to realise this. I wish I'd realised it more quickly or been helped to realise it, but learning to live with doing a job that's never finished is quite hard, especially if you've grown up as I did with a sort of fairly strong Protestant work ethic and sets of employment in my family that were nine to five working for someone else and were you know often either manual or office work where you know you get to five o'clock and you stop and you go home and you become something else you know you are a dad or a son or a daughter or whatever it is mm. um, teaching isn't like that in my experience and learning to step off is hard but necessary. Yes. Learning to step off. And, and as a sort of adjunct to that, or, or a second thought on the same topic or issue, if you can allocate time and program time into your schedule and your diary that is definitely other stuff, and stick religiously to it. You know, don't shelve the bike ride because you've got marking. Mm. Do as much of the marking as you can but still do the, the scheduled other activity whatever it might be whether it's with friends or playing music or getting activity you know exercise whatever whatever and yeah stick to that program that in because otherwise it gets forgotten yes and before you know it you know you're kind of under the strain of working too long too hard without that break from it thank you Really refreshing to hear that from a professor. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it has been an absolute delight. Thank you for your time. For me too. Thank you for, Thank you. for coming. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and we look forward to continuing to work with you as part of our Cardiff Partnership um, yep. connection. So and we should probably say Merry Christmas because although this is coming out after Christmas, yes. <laughs> it is currently, uh, well, it's my last day. We it's are not so yours. close <laughs> to the end of term. <laughs> we are. So Nadella Clowen, Abloyden Newithar, Happy New Year. And hopefully we will have you on again in the near future. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was me, Professor David James from Cardiff University. Today's book recommendations were The Mismeasure of Man by Stephen Jay Gould and Miseducation by Diane Ray. A final reminder to remember to step away from the never-ending job that is teaching. Please take a break. Emma and Tom are off to sign up with my dentist. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching.